Hello and welcome to the Super Jump Podcast. I'm your host, as usually, Mitchell Farley Wolf, and I'm here with a special guest host who I spent the this week, this last week, doing a little thing we call E3 together with. This is Jeff Onan. Hey, Jeff, how's it yes, going? I'm Jeffrey Farley Onan, and I also <laughs> spent the week at E3. I did that uh, this past week uh, with Mitch out in Los Angeles, California. It's true, we did that. Um, we've been friends for a while. You've been on the show. A number of times, actually. I'm, I'm sure your voice is not a uh, surprise to the audience at home. But this was actually the first time we ever met each other, so that was pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, you know, you've got uh, you've got more limbs than I expected. Yeah, I don't like to tell my internet friends that I have seven arms, but I do have seven arms. It's something. Uh, it's just, you know, I just rolled with it. But, it, you know, it's fine. You shouldn't be ashamed of how you are. Yeah, you know, I have to... Just walk past everyone at the Nintendo booth, and I wave to like five different people, and they're like, "Oh, how? Ugh, I don't like ugh. that." Everyone just pukes just a little bit. <laughs> everyone pukes in their mouth a little bit, and they have to swallow it because they don't want to make a scene. But that is what my seven arms do, Jeff. That my appendages are not what we're here to talk about today. We're here to talk about the little show on the West Coast they call E3, a, a magical time of year for video games and video game players alike. Um, I thought we would start with the press conferences and then make our way into the actual, um, our, our experience on the show floor and, and throughout the main body of the E3 week. Are you down for that? I am down to clown. I think that's an excellent format. So let's, let's get to it. Cool. Uh, so normally during the Super Jump podcast, we'd have a few segments like the Playtime Report, what we've been playing lately and the uh, after school activities where we would recommend someone check something out between this and the next show we're just not going to do that this time uh you know too much stuff to talk about besides those things so first the first press conference was not actually a press conference it was just a tiny little demonstration by ea um ea games it's in the games they did a little bit on jedi fallen order and by a little bit i mean like a lot a lot a lot a lot and they only did <laughs> Jedi Fallen Order. And then they did three other games a little bit, like their 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 uh, FIFA. I think it was Madden, FIFA, and Battlefield. And that was it. That was their entire E3 presentation. It wasn't billed as a presentation. They, they made a, a, a big to-do about saying, no, 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 this is not a traditional presentation. This, this is actually just us demonstrating a few games at a time, which happens to correspond to when we normally do big presentations. So, Jeff, I know you didn't uh, actually watch this. I didn't either. But I did see some of the gameplay for Jedi Fallen Order that came out of this. What do you think about that? Uh, Jedi Fallen Order is interesting. I think that, um, you know, Respawn Entertainment, which is the team behind it, the team behind um, the Titanfall games, and I believe Apex Legends, uh, they are right, yeah. typically well-regarded, uh, I think, right now. I don't think that... I think that if, if they have any shortcomings, it's typically blamed on their publisher, Electronic Arts, and whereas, for the most part, Respawn Entertainment uh, is one to follow. And I think that the, when it was announced that they were making a Star Wars game, there's a lot of hype surrounding that, and what we've seen so far seems to have delivered on kind of the promise. I think... It looks good. It looks about what you want 
out of a single-player adventure game set in the Star Wars universe. It's very Uncharted. Some of the interviews we've seen come out of it have claimed that there's a little bit more openness to the structure of the the Uncharted formula in in so far as it's even been described as a Metroidvania in ways. Yeah, um, which that's a weird one. But we'll see right. how that plays out in execution, but I guess uh, anything that opens up the the um, that adventure structure to be a little less linear, a little non-linear, which is I think what Metroidvania. Uh, sort of implies when you use that verbiage. Um, yeah, you know, I think it looks good. It doesn't set the world on fire for me, uh, but also I never thought it would particularly. What are your thoughts? Um, I like Star Wars when I... I like Star Wars when I like Star Star Wars, and that's, um, I think, becoming an increasingly popular thing for previous big fans of Star Wars to say about themselves. We all have different things we like about the series, and sometimes I just don't care. Like, uh, like I know you were a big fan of Solo. I didn't care about Solo at all, um, but I did like The Last Jedi a lot. You didn't like just like uh, The Last Jedi at all. This game is a lot closer to something I would care about than most other Star Wars video games for the last like decade have been. So I'm pretty excited about that. Um, it, they're they're jumping into some some of the lore that they're trying to set up for the first time that the, the Disney company is really interested in this 20 year period between episodes three and four. And, uh, they're, they're trying to set up people like saw Guerrera to be one of the new, you know, major players of that era. So you're seeing a lot of people like saw Guerrera in this trailer, in this gameplay demo. And that's cool. Um, I, I like that they're, they're expanding the universe in that area a lot more, but, it's also um, this kind of gameplay structure that I think we'll talk about a little bit more when we talk about Avengers later on. Um, it's this very Uncharted-inspired thing that I'm not sure how big of a fan I am of that. It's very linear. It, it seems very like, okay, do this thing. Now walk down the hallway a little bit more and do that thing. And I think that's a huge you know, underplay of how complicated and interesting these things can be. But so far, I'm not seeing the thing that's really going to grab me. Maybe once we see the Metroidvania angle of it, whatever it is they're talking about, then then it may fall more into my particular interests. Um, but that is just me, and I recognize that. I can, I can definitely understand that a lot of people are huge fans of that Uncharted structure. And for them, this is going to be awesome. This is just going to be a playable Star Wars movie. And uh, I think people expected a third Star Wars story movie to be made that uh, it, it never got made. So this is, is that kind of Jedi Fallen Order. Cool idea. Cool enough idea for me. Yeah, definitely. That's where I am. You know, EA... So EA didn't have as much a presence as in past years. Um, <clears throat> Sony, another typically one you know one of the biggest players in the industry for sure also chose not to have any presence at e3 um yeah. so it's kind of a, a, an off e3 a little bit of a different thing than we're used to um but then we went into the microsoft press briefing or the xbox briefing um on sunday which yeah we did that we both and actually attended live um we did we did attend live and before we talk about that i, I want to go back and circle around to what you said about sony i felt kind of bad that this was your first e3 jeff because 
you know, EA wasn't really doing their full thing and Sony wasn't there at all. I felt like it was, there was some stuff missing from the C3. Did it feel like it was missing to you or did it just feel like what it was? Uh, certainly, certainly not. I, I mean, I think that as a person who's never attended E3, uh, I was blown away and excited to be there. And I think that it could have been maybe the worst E3 in recent memory. And I still would have just had a blast. And maybe that just sets me up for some real excitement if I come to another E3 next year or the year beyond. Um, and it's different. But I didn't think that it was a, a, a bad E3. I can see how in terms of the how for the, the experience for the fans at home, the experience in terms of just the pure news feed, um, how it could be a bad E3 or a lesser E3 than some past years. But um, I think that the show floor experience is something to behold. It's something that you can enjoy. Um, and so, and we'll get into that for sure later. Um, but no, I, I, obviously I, speaking also as a big fan of Sony, there certainly was an aspect of, of that, that felt like, you know, man, I wish that there was a Sony booth this year. I wish I could see some of, cause Sony always has, um, something big. They always are kind of a presence at the show. So it is different. It was interesting. And uh, as a Sony fan, that's disappointing, but. I, I had a great time regardless. Yeah. it um, the, Sony put out a trailer for Death Stranding the week before E3 and revealed that it's coming out this fall. And now there's some news out that just came out earlier um, within the last couple of days that suggests that The Last of Us Part Two could be February. And those are two of Sony's biggest games in a really long time. And there were other things that normally would have attended E3 in the Sony booth that didn't have any presence this year um, that are third party, like uh, uh, Call of Duty, the Modern Warfare. Not the Modern Warfare, you know, it's it's the one that's called Modern Warfare. And Control, which was at E3, just not at any press conference. So those things altogether, I feel like they could have made up an E3 presentation for Sony Sony just didn't want to. They just weren't feeling it. I think the expectation was that if they did it, they'd have to talk about PS5, and they don't want to talk about PS5 yet until Xbox talks about the Xbox 4 or whatever. Yeah, I think um, they're, we're all kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. I think there was a bit of a cat and mouse game there where um, Sony was waiting to see what Xbox had to say um, about their console and and... We all remember how it played out the last console cycle when Xbox revealed first what their plans were and their their entire reveal was a bit of a just disaster showcase. And then Sony revealed just immediately, immediately after, but in a way that was a direct response and said, hey, yeah. here are all the ways in which our PS4 is going to be better than the Xbox One and we're going to be handling it better. And, and it really, I mean, you know, I, I think both companies were a little bit hesitant to uh, reveal too much too early in hopes that they could res be the one to make the response to what the other guys are doing. It does seem like Sony's being a bit smug right now. They think that they have the upper hand, which is definitely true for this console lifecycle, but we've seen how fast and quickly and, and without hesitance that kind of thing can shift. It shifted for uh, from PS2 to Xbox 360, to PS4, maybe to the next Xbox instead of the, the next PlayStation. Who knows? Not me. Um, 
speaking of Xbox, though, we right the Xbox conference. We went there on Sunday morning. It was extremely hot in the line for the Xbox conference, um, as it is every year. I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry that you had to endure. It is it is kind of your fault because you're from California. Mm-hmm. Uh, that being said, I didn't die, so I guess we'll just call it a wash. Yeah, sure. Um, we were we were waiting out there under no umbrellas in direct sunlight for about an hour, um, which was not nice. I think <laughs> we were all invited <laughs> to be there, and none of us were shaded at all. Every year, I think, surely they have to have learned from last year and put some umbrellas out this time. And they never, ever do. <laughs> they they never do it. They're just fine having you be in the sun. But once we got in there, it, it was it was very nice. Um, we happened to sit behind this big extendo arm that had, um, like, one of those traveling airborne cameras on it. Which was nice for the viewers at home that saw that footage in the live stream. But for us who had to sit right behind this arm. It was a little bit of an annoyance. Um, possibly my fault just for choosing that seat without thinking about it, but you how know. How could you have known? How could you have known that this extendo arm? Because at the start, the extendo arm is distended. It is That's as right. it is as miniature as it comes. It is, it, is grow, it is a grower, not a shower. And you never know how much it can extend until it does. And then you realize that it is covering up all of Keanu. Which is a yeah, isn't that what situation. E3 is all about? Just being so close to Keanu Reeves, but a thin layer of scaffolding divides you. Yeah, that's that's pretty much uh, a great it's a metaphor, metaphor for all of E three. It is. Uh, so the Xbox briefing, I think overall, um, you know, I, there was never, I think, in the history of E three, um, more of a of eyes on a single conference in terms of holding up the show as yeah. there was then because. There never so was, too. you know, long ago, Nintendo stepped out of E3 to do their own um, D- Nintendo Directs. These these live streamed, uh, well, they're not live streamed, but, you know, streamed, um, whatever you want to call them, pre-produced events, whereas they're not a stage show. And this year, Sony didn't do a stage show. And so out of the big three, Microsoft had all eyes on them. They kind of held the mantle and they, they had the opportunity to be this is the only platform where a console manufacturer will do a live show that can showcase their own games. It can showcase third-party games. It can showcase their next-generation offerings, if that's what they're ready to show off. And I felt like they didn't live up to the hype. They didn't They didn't take that stage and that, that presence, and, uh, and yeah. they didn't have the, the meat to back it up. I think that's unfortunately true. Um, there's... Not only does Nintendo only do a pre-recorded thing nowadays, I think there's also just a culture around Nintendo that does not expect them to hold up a bunch of third parties and be like the third party show of the E3 show. Um, And that's probably fine for them because that's where they live. But Xbox can do that. Long ago, they used to do Call of Duty announcements at Xbox press conferences. They don't do that anymore. They do it at Sony press conferences. But the point stands that um, Call of Duty usually is at Sony's show. It could have been an Xbox's show. Well, I say that, but I don't know if there's an exclusivity agreement between the two or something. And Call of Duty just wasn't there instead. Instead of do- instead of being at a different showcase, it opted just to not be there at all. 
Control was not there. Journey to a Savage Planet, I don't think was there. Um, all of these things that we've kind of just been excited to see weren't at the Xbox show. They didn't have that many more announcements in their show to make up for the fact that they were the only big boy doing a press conference that year. Um, and, and that is a bit of a bummer because I think Phil Spencer tweeted before the show something to the effect of like, hey, we know that we need to have a lot out there to make up for the fact that some other people aren't showing up. We have this many first-party Xbox titles. And I think that worked out very well. They actually did have a lot of first-party Xbox titles at this conference, more than they usually do. They had Gears 5, they had Halo Infinite, which is going to spearhead Project Spar uh, Scarlet, which is the Xbox 4 or whatever, that comes out next year in, in holiday next year, so a long way from now. They had Ori and the Will of the Wisps. They had... Uh, um, What's that Obsidian game called? Um, uh, Elden no. Ring. No, not that no. one. No, that's uh, from software. Yeah, no. Um, it, Outer Worlds. The Outer Worlds, yeah. That, yeah. yeah, you got it. Um, the Outer Worlds was there. That's first party now. Bleeding Edge was there. Uh, that's Ninja from, Theory. From Ninja Theory, yep. Yeah. Battletoads was there. That's rare. Uh, so they did or have D a lot. Delala and Rare, yeah. Delala and Rare, but Rare is the first party uh, aspect of that. So sure. they did have a lot of Xbox Game Studios first party games at the Xbox conference, which is kind of a new idea. They didn't usually have that many things like that. Um, so that is cool to see. And it, it's, it's a good feeling, I think, for me that when the next generation of consoles does finally come around, it will be with the backing of a big first party xbox game library absolutely you know i think that in terms of these press conferences xbox has never been known for their first party offerings um you look at kind of their flagship studios in the past things like 343 things like rare um making up a small percentage of the actual show that they had to showcase most of their showcase being third party games that had an exclusivity agreement or just you know, third-party games that are not exclusive at all, just happen to be totally multi-platform, um, but happen to show in the Xbox showcase. Um, and now in just the past year and a half or two years, less than that, uh, they have made an aggressive expansion of the of the Xbox Game Studios, even rebranding themselves as Xbox Game Studios rather than Microsoft Game Studios. Um, growing to... I want to say 14 or 16 different individual studios under the Xbox Game Studios banner. And and one of those being uh, announced at their press briefing, which is the acquisition of Double Fine. Right, uh, that's a big deal. Absolutely. That's a huge deal. H huge announcement. Uh, Tim Schafer showed up on stage for that um, to to provide banter. Uh, the, you know, the, the developers behind Psychonauts and things like... Um, Oh, and I'm blanking. Uh, you know, all those other Double Fine games. Yeah, Quest, uh, Fat Princess, uh, I think is them. Um, is it? I don't think that's true. Um, okay, maybe I just lied a little bit. Costume <laughs> Quest and costume the, one, the, the one the one the Jack Black uh, uh, RTS rock and roll game that I can't remember oh, the title uh, of. Um, heavy Metal, Metal... Oh, man, what is that called? <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, we're really blanking, but they, they're making a, a wide variety of great games, and what I really love, actually, about this acquisition 
is that Double Fine is... Brutal Legend. Brutal Legend, the title of a video game by Double Fine, that slots into Xbox Game Studios in such a unique role. I think that they've... That a lot of their acquisition, acquisitions have expanded what the Xbox brand can be in a way that um, this show, more than past shows, had a lot of variety on display, a variety of genres, a variety of styles and art directions. And, and um, you know, they're often, I think in the past, they were categorized as being a lot of violent shooters, violent, you know, you, you there's a certain direction that you expect the Xbox brand always is. And I didn't really see that this year. Everything was very colorful. Some things were violent and shootery, but still colorful. Some things yeah, were very... Yeah, I mean, you're still going to get yeah. your Gears, and I think your Gears of War is kind of the series that embodies that feeling the most. But you get a lot of other stuff, too. There was an earnest attempt that you felt to move the focus onto a lot of different kinds of things. Like, in Halo, you didn't get the shooter part of Halo as the tease. You got the weird lore science fiction part of Halo to focus on. And in, you got a bunch of smaller games like Battletoads and this Annapurna game called 12 Minutes where you repeat the same 12 minutes a bunch of times that um, I am very excited about. I, I've grown to trust Annapurna with pretty much everything they publish. Um, right, just, just, Ori, of course. There's a big diversity of feeling on the Xbox platform. And I think they're really close to being able to compete with that Sony um, output. The only yeah. difference, I think, is that Sony just has... Sony might even have less variety than Xbox at this point, but they still have these really, really heavy hitters, th these huge heavy hitters that um, ab just absorb the gaming discussion around them whenever they come out, like Spider-Man did last year, like yeah. God of War did last year, like... Um, Horizon Zero Dawn did the year before. Um, and you you want more of that kind of thing from Xbox. And hopefully Halo Infinite is that kind of thing. Uh, we still haven't seen any gameplay, so it's too early for me to say. I would be hesitant to guess that uh, Gears of War 5 will be that kind of thing. Because the Gears of War series just isn't that kind of thing traditionally. Um still exciting still exciting and cool i i, I like it too in terms of um sony staple sony has a lot of games that are critically acclaimed get a lot of attention they also have a series called kill zone um which never is necessarily critically acclaimed and but it, it fulfills a niche it fulfills a role within the sony uh ip staple i think gears well, are probably War... done with kill zone now that horizon is their thing yeah but uh, my point being that gears of war is that it's you have your shooter franchise that isn't necessarily, um, you know, it, it's not going to be that critically acclaimed uh, darling that is talked about as game of the show at any particular year. Um, Gears of War always will be outshined by an upcoming Halo if there is one, um, but it fulfills yeah, totally. a role in the in the in the IP staple. But it is these other games that they these new acquisitions, these new studios, Ninja Theory from Software, Obsidian uh double fine these are the things that are going to fill kind of flesh out the xbox brand and they've got the variety now it's just going to be a question of whether they can hit that uh critical reception the critical darlings that that sony is known for um 
that kind of dominate the discourse around gaming where you can have a, a whole show where you have only one game to show and it's called Spider-Man. And, and if it's, if it's got that much hype around it, you only need one game to carry a show and it will still make you the most talked about company. Um, you know, Xbox hasn't had one of those really in a long time. Uh, but we will see. I, I yeah. think it's really great to see them pushing the first party angle instead of pushing for business partnerships with other companies that are the ones making the games. It's nice to see the games that are being made on the Xbox platform, the good ones, they're going to have the the word Xbox, you know, financing them. And, and that's that's really interesting. It's a new change of direction. Um, Keanu Reeves was there. Keanu Reeves was there. Um, he was talking about his role <laughs> in Cyberpunk 2077. And he did us the honor of showing us the release date for that game, which is early uh, next year, I think April of next year, which is not very soon, but also um, pretty soon, considering what that game is and how I expected to play it in maybe five years. Um, did you did you play any of the Witcher games? I did not. Um, I know that Witcher 3 is one of those big, yeah. big, big, big games, but no, haven't had a chance to play it. Well, this is CD Projekt Red's first non-Witcher game, mm -hmm. and uh, it's got a lot of people really excited, and for good reason. They, they are very good at making open-world games, and now they've got Keanu Reeves' face on it. This is totally one of those purely cash-grab moments. You know, they just did this for the celebrity factor. It's obvious. At the same time, though, Keanu Reeves is like the guy to do it if you're going to do it. There's no person that could elicit the reaction that crowd gave Cyberpunk 27 or 2077 other than Keanu Reeves. He did such a good job of hyping up that entire room, probably too much, if we're being <laughs> honest. Probably probably an irresponsible amount of hype. Well, just, and just from seeing yeah. Keanu Reeves. The the other aspect was how he so Keanu was there, he did reveal the release date or he ushered in the reveal of the release date. And that release date was, um, it was a full 57 years sooner than I expected, which sure. is excellent um, that we can pull that off. Uh, so we've got 2077 games coming out next year. That's incredible. <laughs> and Keanu is involved. I'm, I'm all about it. I'm on board 100%. We were in the crowd. We were not too far from Keanu. We got a very good look at Keanu. And his whole We were physically persona. very close to Keanu Reeves, and that's that's a whole thing for me. Yeah. Yeah, Keanu Reeves came out of the same tunnel as the Forza Lego car. Um yeah. which is another announcement they had. Uh unrelated two to beings Keanu. of equal importance. Yeah, they were the those are kind of the two stars of E3. Um I got to take a picture in the Lego car, Jeff. Ain't I special? Ain't ain't you is. You is special. Uh, I didn't take a picture in the like. I'm sure I had the opportunity. I never felt like waiting in the line. I never felt like actually demoing the game. Um, but I loved the concept. I loved the execution. I think that driving Lego cars around a Lego environment is cool. But what where that that expansion for Forza Horizon Four, where it really shines, is when you have the Lego cars driving around the rest of the Forza world, or when you have the the real photorealistic Forza cars driving around in the Lego part of the world, um, you get that juxtaposition of style uh, with realism mixed with Lego 
and, and it's just great. It's just so fun. It's funny. The trailer was funny. The sort of everything is awesome uh, trailer where the, the Lego cars all come running down the, the street uh, into the Forza world. Um, ultimately, kind of a, a small, low significance announcement at E3, but I think it's one of those ones that makes a big splash when it happens just because of the absurdity of it and it becomes a big ticket news item. Um yeah, I, you yeah. know, I, I think it's great. Uh, and, and they had the Lego Forza car at the show as a big presence in the Microsoft Theater. So going back for a second to Double Fine. Um, I view Double Fine as a very prestigious studio that a lot of people really like. But also a studio that never gets the sales that it maybe feels like it deserves and never quite makes the splash I feel like it deserves to make sometimes. Um, and that's similar to how I felt about both Ninja Theory and Obsidian. And now all three of those companies are working for Xbox, which makes me wonder why that kind of thing is so highly praised within Xbox right now. Why do you think that they're going for that idea? Well, and I think you have to look at it from both perspectives. And uh, from the opposite point of view, it is why are studios that are critically acclaimed or are popularly praised, but not getting the sales they deserve? Why are they seeking out the partnership with Xbox? Um, oh, and sure. it, it I mean, goes it makes sense both ways. It certainly makes sense for them. Um, and I think that I think it makes sense for Microsoft too. It makes sense for the Xbox brand to grab these studios that are known for big games um, that they can kind of widen their brand. They can widen their appeal and widen, you know, the, the Xbox sort of what, what people think Xbox can be. Um, but there's sort of this hope on both sides. There's hope from the developers and there's hope on Xboxes as a brand, their, their point of view that with the money behind it, that Microsoft can provide that the, with the marketing machine that Microsoft can provide when, when we pull them away from their previous status of having to sort of manage if they're independent, uh, you know, you previously had to manage your own finances, you had to manage your own marketing and getting yourself published. If we pull all of those stresses away from you and we put it into this machine that is Microsoft, one of the biggest corporations in the world, maybe that's all it takes to suddenly unlock the sales that these studios are potentially uh, capable of. And, and Microsoft hopes that's the case because Microsoft, for, for certain, didn't buy these companies expecting them to not put out sales. Um, and But these companies bought into the same deal and the same partnership, hoping for the same thing, that, that Microsoft is going to remove some of the stressors um, and and remove the financial stressors, remove the, the publishing and, and marketing complex, you know, complications, and that that will result in them being able to focus on what they're good at, which is making games. And Xbox brand will be able to focus on making those games sell. And and it is actually an interesting, different perspective here, which is that Microsoft right now is not entirely uh, interested in individual products producing sale numbers. Right. Um, right. Because they are trying to promote uh, their service, which is Xbox Game Pass. So Xbox Game Pass Ultimate was announced at this E3 uh, conference, and really it's a bundling of some things that already existed. So there's Game Pass for the Xbox One, 
there's now, uh, as of a, I think a month ago or so, it was announced that Game Pass for PC is going to be a thing, and Xbox Live Gold. These were all different services, so it made sense that Microsoft would say, okay, you want to get just our entire suite of stuff? How about $15 a month? You can have everything. This is probably a bigger deal than anything else at that conference, though. Because if you have an Xbox, just based on how earnestly they're promoting the Game Pass right now, if you have an Xbox, for $15 a month you can have every single new Xbox Game Studios title, and now that includes Double Fine and, um, and, and Obsidian and Ninja Theory and old things like 343 and Rare, and things that they've always been partners with, but now own, like Playground and uh, Playdead Studios. Yeah, all Mojang, etc. Yeah, Mo Mojang, for sure. Uh, all of those things. You just get for free on a very Netflix-like subscription service that, at the end of the day, is not that expensive when you consider that AAA video games are $60 each at when they're new, and this is a fourth of that per month. So if you were ever going to buy three games or more for your Xbox in a year, which honestly has been a bit of a problem getting me to do that for Xbox, not, not a guarantee for sure, buying three or more games per year. But if you are going to buy three or more games per year, Game Pass Ultimate has become just so affordable and so such a no-brainer to do. Yeah, and, you know, I, Game Pass is just getting a tons a ton of uh, old games for the 360 as well. 360 games are showing up there and third-party games that like for me have no business being there but just are like Hollow Knight. They're they're showing up there too. It's it's wild. Uh, you know, another way I look at it is uh you know, I was explaining this to another friend of mine. Um it's not just that will Game Pass pay for the games that you already planned on buying? Um, which from the consumer standpoint, that's maybe the way you should look at it, is what would I have bought if I didn't buy Game Pass? And then will Game Pass pay for all that and more? That's the way, yeah. you, that's the way you ought to look at it as a consumer. But the way that Microsoft would like you to look at it is <laughs> once you have bought into it, look at how many games you could experience that you didn't plan on. And I think that was a theme of their show. Is uh, uh, The theme was you're discovering your new favorite game. I think that a lot of what they're saying in that phrase is finding games that you never expected to buy, you never expected to play, but because they're part of the service, you don't you have you can you can try them guilt-free. You can try them for free, you can just and, and and what they're doing is they're providing this library to you and it is a very Netflix style model they're trying to promote in that you're getting not just what you would have got otherwise, but you are getting access to a library of things that you can just hop on the Xbox at any moment when you are bored and looking for something new, and you'll discover something you never planned on buying, something that you never planned on experiencing, and find the next favorite thing that you might want. And and I think that it's a compelling model. I think that it's they they clearly I. Th they know what they're doing in trying to promote engagement with this service. Now, what I'm not sure about is, do they know what they're doing in terms of transitioning engagement with that service into profit? Because it yeah. seems yeah. almost too good to be true. 
It does. It seems too good to be true, but I think they're at a point where they're just saying, people aren't buying our games. <laughs> I think I think that that has to be where they are because of... Well, I mean, Game Pass has been going for over a year now, since um, early 2018. But they've also had issues with selling a lot of things after that. Crackdown 3 sold very poorly after being held up as the Xbox thing of, well, of the year, of the uh, of, of that calendar year when it came out. And uh, State of Decay 2, think, I think, did all right, but, like, not so great. Sea of Thieves seems to have been the only thing that um, has, has been really good for them recently. But even then, that had a, ruck, a, a rocky launch and became a good thing. So I think Phil Spencer is looking at all of these games where they're investing millions of dollars into these games and getting uh, celebrity likenesses for people like uh, like Terry Crews and Crackdown. And they're just not selling. In spite of all that, they're not selling. So Microsoft is saying, well, if we can't sell these in- as individual things, which would be the highest amount of profit we could potentially get, let's get the second highest amount of profit we could potentially get and do a subscription service. And I think it's probably going to work out. I, I think that's probably going to be a really good uh, distinguisher between Xbox and Sony. Because even if Sony has all of those like really, really big heavy hitters, that's only going to be two things a year that are going to be that big. And Xbox, the Xbox 4 is going to have hundreds of things a year that you can get on Game Pass. And you can just play all of those for one subscription fee, which is going to be a lot cheaper anyway than whatever you would have done on Sony. Um, And yeah, you're not going to get your third-party games immediately with the Game Pass, but you will get them eventually, apparently. Apparently, it's easy to get some of those third-party games within a good amount of time. Um, So so that, that, to me, is a big game-changer in how we're going to view the console race going forward. Um, that said, still weird to me about Double Fine. I, you know, um, for a very healthy video game industry, it would be nicer to have a lot more things independent, but we'll see how that goes. Um, Psychonauts 2 is also coming out on PS4, and I think that's an important thing to bring up when you're talking about Microsoft these days. All, all of their exclusive games are coming out on other things. Cuphead is now on Switch also. Uh, Ninja Theory's thing, Hellblade Center was sacrificed, that's on Switch 2. Uh, Obsidian's new game, The Outer Worlds, that's coming out on PS4 too. And maybe all those things are happening because they were already in the works when Microsoft bought them, so they were just okay letting those companies continue to do their thing. But maybe that's just how things are going to go in the future too. And if that's true... It really deflates the feeling of Microsoft having all these exclusives because they're not exclusives. So, like, if you keep doing that, even if you make the Game Pass really attractive, even that's on PC now, why why buy the next Xbox if I can just not, if I can just buy something else and have all that stuff? Yeah, certainly it's an interesting strategy. I think when it first began, there was something like Minecraft, that was essentially grandfathered in because when mm-hmm. Microsoft bought Minecraft, they already existed on every console you could own. 
Um, and so yeah. it, was, it was a case of, well, you're not going to just pull them off. Like, you're not going to shut them down. Um, and over time, we've seen that umbrella broaden to things like Cuphead, things like all these other examples, which you already cited. Um, and, and it begs the question, are these being grandfathered in from previous arrangements? Or is it things like, you know, does Microsoft see something like Cuphead selling better for them if they put it on the Switch, um, which might be the case, and it might be a good business decision in, in a sense. Um, but when you start cross-pollinating releases between the Xbox One and the PS4, it really begs the question of, well, why are why are they first party? What what benefit are they providing for the Xbox brand if they aren't driving sales of the Xbox console? And I think that when you dilute the that sort of exclusivity, you do dilute that that desire for um, you know that, that promotes sales uh, of a specific console. Uh, I think that it makes more sense with the Switch. The Switch is always going to be a non-competitor. It's always going to be a sort of different concept than the Xbox One. S sales of a Switch aren't necessarily going to cut into sales of an Xbox One. And so you're reaching a different audience in that way. I think ideally Xbox would like for anything they sell to to be reachable on the Xbox console. Like anything that anything you would say that's going to sell better on Switch. It yeah. would be nice if you could make the Xbox brand change to a point where it wouldn't sell better on Switch. It would sell just as well on Xbox. <laughs> but that, yeah. is, that is pie in the sky. Um, but comparing the Xbox to the PS4 is way different, way easier. It's way more simple to say, yes, you as a brand ought to be making those things exclusive. You ought to be um, not cross-pollinating those releases with the PlayStation in, in an effort to sell more Xbox consoles. We'll see how it plays out. I, I know that when they changed their branding from Microsoft Game Studios to Xbox Game Studios, they specifically came out and said Xbox, the nomenclature, does not denote a a box made of plastic and metal and chips. And X's, yeah. And X's. Xbox is a service that can be on any console. And that feeds into xCloud, which is their way of putting Xbox games on any device through cloud gaming, such as a mobile phone, a tablet, computer, laptop. Um, but it also means that Xbox as a brand can appear on the Nintendo Switch. Xbox as a brand, I guess, can appear on a PlayStation 4, although that seems pretty weird and off. Um, and so it's an interesting strategy. They're really stretching themselves out in this way, and we'll see how well that pays off. Um, but overall, you know, overall thoughts on the show, Mitch. Let's, let's wrap this up. Overall thoughts on Xbox's press briefing. I um, was happy yeah. with their first party offerings, but I was a little disappointed that they were not the like the centerpiece of gaming uh, that they could have been while Sony was absent. Bethesda show, which was later that day, they showed off Doom Eternal. They uh, released its release date, which is November 22nd of this year. So another November game. Um very traditional November game. Doom is always going to be a, a huge game, you know, like one of the big games of the year every year. How excited are you for Doom? Uh, Doom looks great. Doom Doom is those, one of those game franchises, one of those shooter franchises, and I'm a shooter fan. Um, 
that you always know that id software over there at bethesda working on doom that they will get the gun feel down and i i hope you know what i know what i mean by that that when when you're wielding a shotgun in a doom game that is going to feel good and then when you're wielding uh, a different when you're wielding a rifle and you're wielding different types of guns the gun feel is always going to feel powerful so it's going to feel right it's going to have the right kind of uh, well, yeah, it's gun feel. I'm not going to get into the definition of gun feel, but their gun feel is good. It's got good gun feel. And Doom is one of those that, that executes on that perfectly, and the question always is just what are the rest of the game built around right. that, it, whether that is good or not. And Doom Eternal looks good. It does. I, I, I got a little demo of Wolfenstein Youngblood, and I believe that is also id Software in Bethesda. Um... And I was less impressed, but I feel very confident that Doom uh, will deliver uh, more so than Wolfenstein this year. I I think so too. Uh, Wolfenstein has been it it had the New Order a little while ago, and that was just so fantastic. And that was maybe one of my favorite it games of all time. Although I don't think that was uh, expressly it. I think that would have been. Actually, I don't know enough to say whether or not that was it. That was one of Bethesda's people. And the newer Wolfenstein stuff has been like a little bit less and less interesting to me. But Doom has been just really, really solid. It plays almost like a Nintendo-designed game. Where instead of you're focusing on Link's sword or Mario's jump, it's just Doom guy's shooty-shoots. And he shooty-shoots so good. <laughs> um, now... That was really the only thing of interest at Bethesda's show. Um, they did say they did have a little bit of a, a thing called Death Loop that we were both pretty interested in. It I kind of don't understand the gameplay of Death Loop yet, but I'm uh, really interested in the story where one person is trying to um, end this time loop and the other person is fighting them in order to keep the time loop going forever. And uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff I think they can get out of that story. Everything else at Bethesda was kind of trash. <laughs> Everything else in that press conference was um, a, a little boring, for sure. Certainly, they, yeah. Uh, you they, know, we didn't get much... Commander Keen mobile game. Right. Yeah. And I'm sad about that because you know that what? mobile game looks not good. Uh, I'll say that, that Commander Keen as a franchise deserves probably better than the mobile game. Uh, or definitely it deserves better. Um, that... Being said, I don't think that this mobile game existing is a bad thing. What they've done with it shows a little bit of paid respect to the lore. They're definitely keeping it in, in terms of like they've got it slotted into a, a spot in the timeline. That being said, it didn't feel like it belonged at E3. It didn't feel like it belonged on the show floor. It didn't feel like it belonged in the in the in the show conference. Um, it just was not exciting. It's not what you want no. out of Commander Keen, uh, but. Yeah, no, I agree with you entirely. Um, it's kind of a letdown if you're a fan of Commander Keen. Um, yeah, they, they didn't have anything no. to show in terms of Elder Scrolls you know or their audience. big RPGs. Nothing along those lines. You really got to know your audience. You got to know um, who you're making a game for. If, if you're making the game for something like BlizzCon. You know, BlizzCon had that thing last year where they announced uh, that Diablo mobile game. And it obviously went down really poorly because they didn't announce it to the right audience. Even if that mobile game is good, you know, there's, there's, that's besides the point almost at that, at that point. 
uh, if you're telling the wrong people, you're going to get an undesired reaction. Um, let's see. Moving on from Bethesda, the next morning is Ubisoft. Uh, Ubisoft had a lot of Tom Clancy stuff that um, I just don't have that much of a, of a reference for. So I'm afraid we're going to have to skip talking about it. I'm sure some of it's very exciting. There was a new Rainbow Six game. Um, there was a Tom Clancy, like, Smash Bros-esque mobile game where characters from all the different Tom Clancy games show up. That seems like a thing. I hope people like it. I honestly have no idea whether people do or don't. But they opened the show with, I think, the most impressive game of E3. If it works like they say it works, and I don't know, maybe it doesn't, but if it works like they say it works, wow, this is a mind-blowing game. So, Watch Dogs Legion is the name of it. It is a game where you can play as every single person in London, and every single person in London has a unique voice acting um, script, has a unique origin mission, and has unique uh, skills, like... Some people are, are just really good at coding, and some people are just really good at infiltration. Uh, some people don't hack at all, which is weird for a Watch Dogs game, but some of them are just more like, hey, I'm, I'm just big and strong and fast, and you're going to want that. Um, I'm really excited about this, and I'm, I wasn't that big on the first two Watch Dogs games, but this, uh, this looks really great. Yeah, Watch Watchdogs. I thought, was one of the more interesting things of the show. I think that Watch Dogs always has... Whenever they are revealed at an E3, it is one of those more hyped things. And then the release of the game is not always as hype necessarily. Um, but what one thing I can appreciate about their presentation of the game was how it was focused around real gameplay footage. And I felt like that was a theme at this E3 that a lot of the big name games, a lot of the big releases they did not show gameplay footage, at least in their press briefings, in their big, large stage show reveals. It was trailers of, uh, you know, trailers of cutscene yeah. footage and, and pre-animated footage. Um, and Ubisoft focused in on gameplay, and that I can appreciate. That really gets me excited to play a game way more than a cutscene. Yeah, me too. Um, I think there's an argument to be made that most games these days that come out, especially from AAA publishers, are of the same technological level. Even Nintendo is close, where it's just like, you say, hey, there's a big open world, we can have a lot of NPCs to talk to, a lot of side quests to do, um, a lot of pretty graphic things, and of course we can render it if we throw enough time and money and um, expertise at the problem, we can make that game. I think it's very expected. And Watch Dogs 3, not only did it rise to the occasion of having a bunch of gameplay in its demo, it isn't one of those things. This is If they can do this, if this is actually what they're saying the game is, which again, maybe there's some way that it's not. Maybe there's some way it's a lie. But if they can do this, this is one of the most impressive things I've seen in a AAA video game in a very long time. This actually feels like a huge advancement. Definitely. It's one of those games that I wish I would have gotten time to get on the show floor and, and get, get to their booth. Um, but it's just you can't see everything on the show floor while you're at E3. Um, and sometimes you make a wrong bet and you bet on the wrong game that you want to spend your time waiting in line for. But 
Watch Dogs, and we will talk about that. Watch Dogs seems to me to be, I want to say, the most exciting single game to come out of the C3, and and that will change as we find out more news uh, about it and about other games. But, you know, things like Halo Infinite, sure, great. Maybe that's cool, Maybe. but they didn't show us enough to get excited in the way that we'd like to be. Um, Gears of War 5, yeah, same. They didn't have a lot of gameplay to show. Um, anything really big reveal-wise at any of these big shows, I, w- I want to say Watch Dogs was the one to, to watch. That uh, you know, No pun intended. It, it is the one to keep your eye on. Um, they, they really made a good presentation of it. They made it look, be the kind of thing to look out for. Yeah, uh, there was a talk Jonathan Blow did a little while ago, and he's a controversial figure, so um, take whatever he says with your understanding of who he is as whatever. Anyway, he was talking about, like, when was the last time we really had a major gameplay design innovation in AAA space? And he cited World of Warcraft as the last time, which is a disappointingly long time ago. Um, In AAA space... I was trying to think of, like, no, it's clear, there's definitely been something more than that. Maybe not. A lot of the advancement we've seen since then has been in uh, perfecting previously designed gameplay structures and turning to turning our graphics and sound into, into the prettiest graphics and most enjoyable sound we can possibly muster on a computer chip. But for the most part, yeah, there there's not always so much gameplay innovation and this might be it this might be like a new thing that i'm going to be really really impressed by i i can't understate i can't overstate rather how if this is legit and again big if if it's legit it this is going to be huge this is going to be a huge game changer all of a sudden you're going to be talking about like well this zelda game was huge and good and it was really well designed but like not every single NPC in the game had an entire life. Uh, or this Elder Scrolls Six, pretty good. They even got away from the uh, old Fallout 76 engine that was holding them back so much. But you can't be every NPC. This is, it's like such a big thing. It'll really change how open world games are perceived. Yeah, definitely. So you know, Ubisoft, outside of Watch Dogs, outside of Tom Clancy, um, they didn't have much. They didn't have any, they did not have Beyond Good and Evil 2. They did not. They didn't have. Um, did they have Wild, uh, the Michael Ansel game? They did not. They did not. They did not have Rayman of any kind. They did not have an Assassin's Creed game. Although they had Gods and Monsters, which was from the creators of Assassin's Creed Odyssey, uh, which could be one of their big releases when it comes around. Um, I felt like it's still kind of early days to to kind of judge that one um they didn't have a lot to yeah show. i think they at, at ubisoft know how big that game is going to be and know how interesting and cool that game is going to be especially coming from an assassin's creed team so they gave it a very impressive spot in the press conference which was at the very end of the press conference um but what they showed of it was just um maybe not enough to convince people Maybe not enough to convince me. I'd love to see more. I love the way it looks. I love the premise. Uh, Greek mythology is pretty cool. I'm I'm down to get in on some of that. But yeah, it, th- there were some comparisons to Breath of the Wild, but really only in its art style. Other than that, 
who knows if it's going to play like Breath of the Wild or not. Yeah, could be cool. That's that's kind of where I am. Could be cool. It could be cool. It um, could be cool. I'd love to see more. So following on from Ubisoft, I believe there's just Square Enix left to discuss. Square Enix and Nintendo. Uh-huh. Uh, yes. So Square Enix had Final Fantasy VII Remake and announced that that game, or episode one of that game, is actually coming out early next year. Um, pretty surprising. I That was another thing that I could have bet we would see in like five years. And maybe we'll see the end of it in five years, but episode one is coming out soon. Yeah. So do you have a do you have a fondness for Final Fantasy seven? Not in particular. I did play it as a kid. It, um, even as a kid, I think I was too young to maybe think of how, you know, to the, the people who grew up on it and think it's the most amazing shit. I just think I wasn't the right age for that, whether I was too young or too old, um, because I. Uh, you know, I still just like the Super Nintendo ones better from the Final Fantasy franchise. Um, I played it. I thought it was annoying that it came across multiple discs on a PS1. That's about the extent of my opinion of it as a kid. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. get ready to be annoyed as it comes out across multiple episodes in the remake. Episode 1 is coming out in March of next year, but uh, that's just the the game up until like the end of Midgar, you're never going to leave Midgar. Mm-hmm. And episodes two and beyond are, I would I would wager not 2020. I would wager 2021 or longer. Um, still don't know how I feel about that, that episodic release. I don't know why they're doing that. Final Fantasy 15 didn't do that. And the remake of seven should not be a bigger game than 15, but maybe it is. I think the fact that it is real, it is, uh, it has a release date, at least the first episode does, I think is that's something that people can get excited about. People have wanted this for so long. It has been talked about for so long. Um, and even after gameplay has been shown of it, it's still something that's like, like you said, that might come out in five years. You never do know. You never can be too sure. And for them to put a release date on it, that is big news. That is big news for anyone who's been obsessed with that, anyone who's been following that. Um, I personally can't get as excited for a remake of a game that doesn't personally excite me in the you know to begin with. I like what I see of it. I like the ways in which they are. It is not just some sort of shot for shot remake, gameplay remake. No, it is very different. It is retreading the story in ways, but um, but they have completely renovated the gameplay to more modern uh square enix styles of rpgs um yeah and and i'm impressed with the gameplay absolutely Uh, looks it looks really solid it looks like kingdom hearts except um where kingdom hearts is is focused on targeting a younger demographic a a disney fan demographic this is more like it's kingdom hearts but like what it's some it's some real stuff it's some real deal stuff where uh they they will probably account for you being an older gentleman in in your playthrough of the game i i like it i'm i've never played seven mm. uh, well that's not true i played it a little bit but i've definitely never beaten seven and i'm wondering if i should go and play the original seven which recently came on out on the on the switch and that'd be a fun way to do it or if i should wait until this remake and play that as it comes out i know a lot of the story beats anyway so it's not like 
there'd be a spoiler issue on doing one versus the other. I don't know what I should do. Um, I kind of want to play it, at least one of them, so I, I'm ready to do it, but yeah. Well, my advice would be to play Dragon Quest. Oh, thanks. Yeah, and that 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 looks more interesting to me, honestly. Uh, Dragon Quest XI was also talked about in this press conference. It is the Switch version of the, of the game, which uh, the game already came out a little while ago, but the Switch version of the game is coming out later this year, and it's the definitive version of the game. It has more quests, it has Japanese voice acting, it has orchestrated music. Looks pretty good, and I am very excited to play it. I just started playing Dragon Quest games a little while ago. I played the first three, and um, I'm, I'm ready to just play a bunch more Dragon Quest games. I, I missed the original release of this game, so I'm more than happy to jump in on the definitive version of the game. Are you going to play Dragon Quest XI? Uh, potentially, potentially. I uh, You know, it's one of those things... Where it's not that, that I don't have an interest, it's not that I don't have a desire, but it will come down to budgeting and time management. Because there are, I mean, every year there are great games to play. A lot of games yeah. to play, a lot of games going on. Honestly, and, and I, you know, I, I you might disagree intensely with me on this. I, I'm almost more interested in Dragon Quest Builders 2 than I am in Dragon Quest XI. Um, the Dragon Quest Builders games uh are sort of a marriage between uh minecraft style crafting and digging and in in grid based procedural worlds uh and the sort of quest based rpg structure of dragon quest and um i haven't played i did not play the first dragon quest builders but th there's something very appealing about that to me the, you know the art style the gameplay structure it all really is ticking a lot of boxes so that is definitely on my interest list out of this Square Enix conference. Yeah, same here. Um, well, not entirely same. I would definitely still at this point prefer to play Eleven than Builders Two, but it's close, man. I like both of those games look great. Um, the other big thing from the Square Enix press conference, there were a lot of things, but this is the the last biggest thing was the Avengers game. Uh, Marvel's Avengers is being made by Crystal Dynamics which are the Tomb Raider people. And uh, it looks like Tomb Raider. It looks a lot like um, the more recent modern Tomb Raiders, at least in terms of its mechanical design, uh, just like how Jedi Fallen Order looks like Uncharted, which is basically the same genre as Tomb Raider, having these big set pieces and all that. We, later at the show, checked out Avengers, and I, I don't think there was anything quite like Avengers that went from for both of us at least, being really hotly desired to, just as the week went on, we cared about Avengers less and less, and by the end of the week, we did not care that much for Avengers. Certainly. Which is a, a bummer. Yeah, I think that uh, after watching the Square Enix conference, the uh, uh, you know, their, their initial reveal of their Avengers game, I had a strong inkling that, that Square Enix Avengers would be among the biggest games of E3 this year. And maybe, one, you know, when they release it, one of the biggest games of the year. Um, but that was just based on a trailer and based on some buzzwords and some concepts that could get us excited. The more I sat on it and then got into their demo space um, to get a look at the game, um, I've, I've moved into a new position where 
I am no longer interested in it, maybe at all, but I am Aww. but I am open to them changing my mind with a future trailer and more information. Um but I, I definitely feel like it is on them to prove to me that the game is actually worth my interest now. After after at one point thinking that it would be maybe the biggest game of the whole show, which is a drastic shift in opinion. Yeah. Um, what specifically brought you down so much? Uh, well, OK, I think that the number one concept um, of the trailer that, that that isn't on physical display, but is described is the, the idea that the game is a co-op online game that is... Uh, so they describe it as you, you, you play with four players online, you will go through um, stories that evolve over the months that they'll add in new 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 Avengers, new, new superheroes to the, the game world with new aspects of the story, and that the story is told over the course of a year or two years or whatever they said. Um, that it will evolve over time. I, I feel like that's so perfect for something like the Avengers. It's very comic book uh, formatted. Uh, and it is the type of gameplay I can find myself getting into. Almost the grind, but not in the negative connotation, but the the sort of find something that if I like the gameplay and I have some friends that like it, the fact that my friends like it is going to make me want to engage with it more often because it's online. Now, if this was yeah. just a straight single-player game, I would be done with it already with what we've seen. I'm already disinterested because we've talked a little bit and we'll talk more now about how it is sort of this uncharted gameplay style of linear hallways moving from set piece to set piece, maybe mashing the tr triangle button, mashing the other button, jump and, and doing a little bit of combos, but it's cer certainly the gameplay is secondary to moving you through a story, um, you know, sequence of, of set piece, story set pieces. It it's really didn't look compelling in what we got to see behind the scenes um, at our time in their demo booth, which was an offhand demo. Yeah, I got to agree. It's sad, but I, I, I do have to agree. One of the things that they talked about in their, their presentation was the fact that it'd be something of a living game. There's going to be content for this game for years to come. And one of the specific things they hinted at was, or not hinted at, they, they fully announced it, was that Hank Pym's Ant-Man would be one of the Avengers coming soon. Uh, coming soon in an update. Um, neat, right? <laughs> like, I, I think that's cool. Where there's going to be real events that happen in the game and you need to keep up with them in real time. I think that's a cool idea and a cool thing. None of what we saw demoed was that. All of what we saw demoed was a very uh, traditional single-player set-piece action game where you need to do a lot of quick-time events and occasionally be put up against a, uh, a boss. And I think that the, there was a boss in that behind-closed-doors area that we, we uh, watched the Avengers footage in where they fought uh, Taskmaster who was a cool looking boss. That was a, that was a cool thing. And if, if the whole demo was more stuff like that, where there were actual gameplay ramifications of, of, uh, you know, doing better or worse, that would be a neat thing. But it was a lot of have the Hulk walk down this or walk up this, uh, destroyed bridge and you just jump from platform to pa platform, but it's an automatic jump. You just walk to the end of the bridge and, 
you just keep going like that and uh yeah man that's not my thing i wonder if there's people out there that are listening to this podcast saying dude that's my favorite thing i love that and maybe there are i there have to be right because it's such a popular gameplay style but you know, I, I don't I, know it is interesting because i don't feel like i've seen that gameplay style applied to online games in living games something like uncharted no. It makes sense for, but that Uncharted has never been something you're going to join in with four friends and then commit months of your life to repeating the same sort of set pieces because they are through these online, you know, sort of, uh, you know, battle pass type structures, things that Call of Duty, things that Fortnite do, where they're like, okay, we have this pass for this whole Hank Pym event. Come in and experience the story and grind the game for, you know, a certain number of hours over the course of a month so you can unlock all the costumes and the other, you know, things. Whatever. If, if that's the way they're going to structure it, sure, interesting. But I've never seen that method applied to this so linear gameplay style, uh, which is what we've seen so far. I think that if they... Yeah, they, maybe there's yeah. a better way to think about it that they're actually going to go with when they, uh, when they actually do their multiplayer stuff when they actually show that off but until then it just feels like what are you gonna do are you gonna run up a bridge with four of your hulk friends and just run up more bridges again and again uh i'm, I'm sure that's not the case i'm sure they have something planned out but they did not opt to show it uh and that's what we have to go on for the c3 so i'm, I'm still keeping an eye out it could be cool but as of, as of right now i'm not particularly interested in the avengers game which is a bummer i thought i would be i'm in the same boat yeah i think that uh i'm very open to whatever they have to show next uh, giving it an opportunity to convince me to change my mind but um where my mind is is that i'm kind of disinterested I i'm open to changing it also it, looks but... a little looks a little like brown it does yeah. it doesn't it, look impressive yeah. i think that you know and, and it is a totally or apples and oranges comparison but something like sony's uh uh spider-man game on the playstation the look of it was better the gameplay flow seemed way more you know in terms of just enter a room do some combat with a bunch of random npcs which was kind of something that happened in both games in the place in the uh, spider-man game and this avengers game the spider-man combat looked more fluid it looked more fun it looked more interesting they looked like there was more combos more customization to the types of moves we haven't seen any of that yet. And if there is all of that amount of depth for each individual Avenger, if you can get that amount of depth out of Thor and the Hulk and Iron Man, etc., then great. But as it is right now, I mean, they haven't shown me a reason to get interested. And I think that maybe leads us to Nintendo. Yeah, I think it does. Um, let's, let's talk about it. So it opened at 9 o'clock in the morning on the Tuesday of E3, which is right before the press, uh, the show floor opens. They opened with a trailer for Dragon Quest's hero, the Luminary from Dragon Quest XI in Super Smash Bros. And they showed that he has some alternate costumes for the Dragon Quest heroes of Dragon Quest 3, 4, and 8, which are some of the more popular ones. So, um, cool character, I thought. Um, we, the two of us, I think we both like Dragon Quest, but we also both don't have that much nostalgic attachment to Dragon Quest, so it was, it was cool. I think we can understand and, and relate to the fact that 
This is the biggest game in Japan by a country mile. Bigger than Pokemon, bigger than Mario. And understand that that's a huge deal for Smash Bros, even if, even if it's not the biggest thing here. Still pretty cool. Uh, pretty cool thing. It, feel, it makes the game feel more complete because it has Dragon Quest in it. Absolutely. In my opinion. Yeah. And once, that, once Square Enix got involved and the first character they had to reveal was a Final Fantasy character um, and not some sort of... You know, I, I don't know what else I expected. I didn't, I didn't think they had a mascot character that was more encompassing than Cloud, necessarily. Um, uh, but once you represent Final Fantasy, it suddenly becomes a very big hole when you realize that you're not representing Dragon Quest, which is arguably a bigger gaming icon. I mean, globally, globally a bigger gaming icon than Final Fantasy is, is the Dragon Quest franchise. And I think that everyone in the West, whether they have that attachment to it or not, you can still recognize that Dragon Quest is a big deal. It ought to be there among the big heavy hitters like Street Fighter, like Final Fantasy, like Mega Man, Sonic the Hedgehog, all these big third-party iconic uh franchises dragon quest it needed it needed to be there and i and i like that they represented multiple heroes across multiple entries of the dragon quest franchise yeah i wish it was um erdrick from dragon quest 3 as the default instead of the skin because the luminary from dragon quest 11 is the most recent thing but probably not the most important thing uh, and it feels a little bit advertisey for Dragon Quest XI, which it definitely is. That is why they did it. They're trying to make Dragon Quest a bigger deal in the West. It's always been a big deal in the East, but they've been unable to replicate that success in other countries. So for for Europe and the United States, maybe this character is going to be a gateway for more excitement in the Dragon Quest series. I feel like every new character they introduce into Smash, that power to introduce people to that series diminishes a little bit um you know in in melee when there were only 26 characters and two of them were fire emblem that got the west really interested in fire emblem but now that there's um i think there's 76 or 70 73 73 characters with the second character that they introduced in this direct so i i wonder how much someone who's just like oh man there's like five series on here that i don't even know at all how interested they will be in checking out Dragon Quest after Dragon Quest gets in Smash Brothers. Um, maybe maybe they will, though. Maybe it'll, it'll really work out, and more people will buy Dragon Quest XI because of it. Yeah, I think that's their goal. I think that um, when you say that it, it feels advertising, it feels that Luminary is not the most important character, that will become more and more obvious as the years go on once Dragon Quest XI is not the new hotness. Um, all yeah. you have to do is wait a year or maybe two. And then it will be suddenly become weird that Luminary is the mascot of Dragon Quest in the Smash Brothers franchise. Um, you know, Dragon Quest Twelve can't be that far off. So, I don't know. It, it does seem short-sighted. Um, Erdrick is more of a franchise mascot if there is one. Um, but it is nice to include the bunch. It is nice to include the variety. It's not well. Dragon Quest games come out around every five years or so. So, by the time twelve comes out, I wonder if they're still making new Smash Brothers games and they need to update the character. I wonder if they're more likely to just add the hero from twelve as the main skin and make Luminary one of the defaults or one of the alternate skins, or if they'll just transition to Erdrick as the main Dragon Quest hero 
in order to uh, just go with the more timeless one because Erdrick is just the most dra important Dragon Quest character. Could be either of those options as well. And after they did the Dragon Quest reveal for, for Super Smash Brothers, uh, they kind of spent a long, most of the middle of the direct talking about games that we already knew were coming. Um, things like Luigi's Mansion 3, things like, um, I want to say maybe you know, Pokemon Sword and Shield, Sword Mario and Maker. Shield, You're right. Uh, Link's Awakening. Um, any, anything else, big ones? Uh, they, they did get a little bit uh, into uh, sort of our, our first reveal of Animal Crossing. Uh, New Horizons, I believe it's titled. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which was a big deal. New Horizons, that that's a huge deal. I think that game looks crazy. I am very excited to see what happens in that. Um, but they didn't touch on it for very long. They did just announce that they're doing a delay of it from 2019 to March of 2020, which is not that much of a delay, really. But um. Sure. I, I think it'll make 2020 feel like a better year, a more rounded year than either 2018 or 19 have felt, where there's not much in the first half of the year. And then in the second half of the year, there's like three or four things back to back to back, um, which is going to be more healthy for Nintendo's um, output. By, by having Animal Crossing in the beginning of the year, you actually have something in the beginning of the year. That's why I, I, some people are, are upset about the delay, and I think they're completely ignoring that part of it, because that part of it is, it, that's, that's important. Now you actually get something in the beginning of the year for a Nintendo console, and that's pretty right. rare, I guess. And if, and if you want to play something days. in holiday 2019, you know, just buy Luigi's Mansion, all right, and chill out. Yeah, Luigi's Mansion looks really, really good. Um, it was my favorite hands-on demo of the show, probably. I would say so for myself. Um, in terms, absolutely in terms of Nintendo centric, um, by, yeah. by, by a thick mile, I would say Luigi's Mansion impressed me the most. Speaking as someone who's not even a Luigi's Mansion fan or, or, uh, you know, really could be described that way in any way. I was very impressed, thoroughly impressed by the gameplay of it, the structure of it, the, the world layout, the level layouts and, and hidden, you know, exploratives, um, and the personality and animation, all of it, really as a full package, I thought, this is going to be good. This is going to be big. It really raised my perception of the stock of what Luigi's Mansion can be because I've never thought highly of it. And I really thought going, yeah. you know, I thought going into it that this was sort of your budget B list or C list Nintendo game, something like a Yoshi's Woolly World or a Captain Toad that would come. Yeah, we were know. talking about that when we were in the line for Luigi's Mansion 3. And that really surprised me, because that is not where I view that series at all. Um, to, to me, Luigi's Mansion has always been like, well, the first game, that was just a really huge game. That was that was a big title. That was that was like a game changer. That was a launch title for the GameCube and everything. Um, for a while, that was the big Mario game on the GameCube, until Sunshine came out and was that instead. But... Yeah, that, that definitely didn't feel like a like a Kirby-sized game to me. Um, and then Dark Moon kind of did, but more just because it was portable and there's never really been an entry in a main Nintendo series on a portable console that felt as big as something on the cons on the home console, with the exception of Pokemon. Um, so Dark Moon kind of had that against it in terms of scope. But but yeah, I've, I've never felt about... Uh, Luigi's Mansion that it that it was small or anything and it wasn't just you I, I saw other people online they were like 
yeah, Luigi's Mansion, but, it, you know, that's it's just Luigi's Mansion. To, to me, that's crazy. Just just Luigi's Mansion? Luigi's Mansion is Luigi's Mansion, man. That's It's a mansion of, <laughs> of fun and thrills. Yeah, no, I never got that. I think it's prob- probably because I didn't jump into the GameCube era until later. I did not get in at launch. I didn't play Luigi's Mansion. I didn't, you know, even though I got in late, I didn't go back and say, you know what, Luigi's Mansion, that's one of those games I got to have. I didn't. I played Sunshine. I played melee but luigi's mansion i just skipped and so i never got the idea i never was around in that moment in time when luigi's mansion was a big deal so i never did think that i you know they they said they're making a third one i thought that the second one didn't get that much of attention or or a big reception i thought well okay this is just a third one this will be like your captain toad or, or, or yoshi game of the year that kind of slips in under the radar maybe under a budget pricing and and does decently well, but it's not like it's not going to sell a holiday season. Uh, and I think I'm, I think thoroughly I was wrong. I, I got my hands on it. I got a good look at it. I think it is going to be maybe my most anticipated Nintendo game of the year uh, in, in terms of games on the Switch. Um, yeah. For calendar 2019, I think, I think I agree. Yeah. Um, it, it does. It looks very good. Um, Link's Awakening also looks good, but Link's Awakening is just like, I've, I've just played it. Like, I've played it a lot of times. And people are saying, like, what, do you not like Luigi's Mansion? Why aren't you excited? Or not Luigi's Mansion. I got that on my head. Uh, Link's Awakening. Why aren't you excited for this? No, I love L- Link's Awakening. I, I've played it so many times. But um, I don't know, because I like it so much i've never had a problem with the way it looked so now that it looks different it's like well okay that could be cool too um but i have links awakening on a game book cartridge and i play it again and again sometimes i like every few years i go back to play links awakening and i have still liked it so i'm having a hard time being that excited for this one yeah and and then you get to sword and shield pokemon um then you get to sword and shield and you're really you don't like it i am of the opinion that Having skipped the 3DS generation of Pokemon games, sure, I will probably enjoy Sword and Shield for what it is. But I also kind of think of it as, and and this has been a roller coaster for me because I my opinion <laughs> my opinion began this way, and then I saw more, and I thought, wow, I was so harsh that first time. This this whole second opinion is such a different you know upswing of it, and then I got to play it live, and and I think the demo was bad, and and then there's like a lot of other factors around it. I'm starting to think maybe this is just a 3DS game that they put on the Switch. And um, I think that for years and years, I've maybe unfairly said that Game Freak is a studio that um, they are never going to be on the cutting edge. They are never going to make a game that satisfies people in a in a very full sense in the way something like the Zelda team does or the Mario 3D platformer team does. Um, they are never going to step out of a very strict mold. They are never going to impress anybody with maybe anything ever. I don't think Game Freak is capable of it. I don't think they have an interest in it. And I also think wow. that they move too fast to give themselves the breathing room to put out a product that is impressive to any degree at all. Um, and I think I'm probably going to like that game. But I also don't think... <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. I, I don't think I'm going to be impressed by that game even one iota uh, at any step of the way. I yeah. I think I'm going to have fun playing it because I have fun playing Pokemon. 
I think we probably sound so harsh, but <laughs> I think I maybe played up how harsh I wanted to sound, and it might have been entirely on purpose. There's some parts of what they've showed that were not in the demo that we played that are actually the part of the game that I'm excited for, and that's the wild areas. Just these wide open routes where you can explore every which way and, and just there's wide areas where you can sneak up on Pokemon and have full camera control and everything. And that looks great. That's nothing that we've seen in a Pokemon game before. That seems to be mixing the Pokemon in the environment aesthetic of something like Pokemon Snap with a real Pokemon game, which is kind of a dream. That's kind of what we've been wanting this whole time, in a way. And then what they have us play, dude, <laughs> what they have us play instead of that is going just the water gym. And it's just a gym. It's just a gym where you do a puzzle with like, okay, so if you, if, if you press this button, the red geyser shoots up and then you can't walk past this area so then you got to go around that and press the yellow geyser and then go back and put the red geyser down again so then you can go forward and like yeah i've seen that man i've played a pokemon gym before why on earth is this your demo why yeah you demos you have so many opportunities every person that goes to e3 that plays the game ahead of time is someone who's going to be talking about your video game, especially if you're Pokemon. Pokemon has a huge societal cachet, so it like if you play Pokemon, people are going to ask you how Pokemon is. And knowing that, they told you to play the water gym, where you just manipulate some geysers and walk through. Yeah. Why did they do that? Entirely interior environment, where you don't get to see any of the 3d world that that makes this game potentially an improvement on the 3ds games you don't get to mm -hmm. see any of the environments that potentially are an improvement on the 3ds games you get an entire entirely linear path through a gym that is basically a sequence of very simple battles and that's it and this would be a really good demo if you had never played a pokemon game before but if you've never played a pokemon game before how likely is it that you're even going to be at E3? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, how, what percentage of people that attended this year's E3 do you think have never played a Pokemon game before? It has to be less than two. Less than 2%? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably accurate. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think that's probably right. Maybe four, maybe as high as 4%. And, and I feel like if, you, if you've if you gone this long without playing one, maybe you just don't have an interest in it and you won't show up for the demo. So that was that was the middle of the direct to, go, <laughs> to get back on topic. Um, there, there's also some stuff that came out recently about um, not being able to transfer older Pokemon into this Pokemon game. That's a whole kerfuffle in and of itself. Um, maybe another episode of the Super Jump podcast. Um, until then, though... Let's keep on this E3 conversation. At the end of the Nintendo Direct, they basically had two more little presents behind the tree. They did a montage of all the other games, and it felt like that was the end of the show. I looked at the clock, and there were only four more minutes of the show, and I was so nervous. I was like, oh man, are they ending on a montage of all of their other smaller games? That's so lame. Well, don't do that. 
and they didn't do it. They <laughs> didn't because they knew it would be lame. What they actually ended on was a trailer for Banjo Kazooie and Smash Brothers. Um, Jeff, our reaction to Banjo Kazooie and Smash Brothers is on YouTube. Um, we'll probably link it in the show notes or something. Needless to say, we were extremely excited. Um, that was that was just amazing. That was just a treat. It was. It really was. It, the just the concept of Banjo and Kazooie being in Smash Brothers incredible so exciting but beyond that the trailer that they put together uh with help from rare with some scripting help from people at rare um in terms of the concepts of that trailer i mean wow it it was just it was put together for the fans it was put together in a way that it felt unreal it felt like even as a fan if they asked me to write it from scratch i probably wouldn't have come up with something as fan servicey as what they released in that in that Nintendo Direct. Yeah. I I I don't know how they could have done it better. There were so many little references to the Banjo-Kazooie games in there, like how in, at the end of Banjo-Kazooie, you push Grunty off of the tower and she falls into the ground and a rock falls onto where she lands in the ground. Uh Banjo does this to K Rule in his trailer. Um just there's just there's so many little things they're all they're all great and it it's something that i thought in the back of my head man this will never happen but also why why not why can't this happen and uh, it finally happened it was 20 years after the first super smash brothers game but it did happen yeah and it feels like a long time coming it, it feels like yeah this should have Banjo-Kazooie was a Nintendo-owned character for the first two Smash Brothers games. It could have happened back then, but because it became third-party in between Melee and Brawl, um, all of that, all, all of those legal troubles were introduced, and it was never possible until now, when Microsoft is being so chummy with its console competitors. Yeah, it, it really does. It feels like, it, 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 more so than any other third-party character... Other third-party characters, some of them feel right at home. You think something like Mega Man or Simon Belmont, and you think, yes, this is a character which is owned by another company, but is right at home on a Nintendo fighting game. Absolutely. Then you have other characters that are more just like, yeah, this is an icon of gaming as a hobby, as an industry, as, as a, a medium. You know, characters like Pac-Man, characters like Cloud Strife, they maybe aren't really specific to Nintendo really at all, but you get them in there, and it's exciting to have them on the on the roster. Um, Banjo is different than any other third-party character they've added in the sense that it just feels like another Nintendo character that ought to have always been there, but just took us so long to get it. This is a Nintendo character yeah. that maybe could have been there since Melee and just hasn't been until now. Yeah, there was a moment where uh, like Ridley and K. Rule and Incineroar were coming out for the base game of Super Smash Brothers Ultimate, and it felt a little bit like these characters are cool because they're some of the last ones. It, not Incineroar, but definitely <laughs> Ridley, definitely Ridley and K. Rule. Ridley and K. Rule were cool because they were some of the last choices. We finally got around to them, uh, and they felt really big and important for that reason. But in the grand scheme of like who you can add to Smash Bros, in Melee and Brawl, we were still getting around to characters like 
um, Zelda and Mewtwo and Wario and Charizard. You know, like really big Nintendo characters. Um, it, it Getting Banjo and Kazooie in the game is almost like getting one of those really, really big Nintendo characters that they just haven't done for some reason. Um, although, of course, we know the reason, but uh, they just haven't done for years and years and years. Like, they were ignoring one of their biggest properties. And uh, despite it not actually being one of their biggest properties or one of their properties at all, um, it just feels right. It, it honestly, to me, feels a little bit like um, no matter who the other two characters are in the Fighter Pass, there's still two more. Getting Dragon Quest in there as one of the most appropriate third parties that could possibly be in Smash Bros. And getting Banjo in there as a third party that technically once was a first party Nintendo series. It makes Smash feel complete. It, it makes Smash, in a, in a way, feel like you could end it now. And there's so many other characters that won't get in the game that could, like Waluigi and Dixie Kong and other stuff like that, that people want. But it does feel complete to me now. It feels like you could actually say, yeah, it, it could be done. Anything else could be considered extra. Absolutely. I think the same thing. And I also think that it can't be understated how um, Dragon Quest, the hero, the Luminary, Eirdrick, the whole gang... Um, how much an impact that is probably going to have on the Eastern audiences uh, to the extent that Banjo is having uh, to a subsect of the Western audience. Um, and, right. and I think in both cases, there's a degree to that in which it is generational, uh, particularly mm -hmm. with Banjo. Uh, there are younger generations of Western fans that just do not care about Banjo. And I think that a little bit is the case in Japan with Dragon Quest although certainly to a lesser extent. Um, but for the most part, it is a cultural thing for both things. We have in the West, Banjo returning home to Nintendo is this thing that even if you don't like Banjo, if you're of the age group to remember Banjo, you understand how big a deal this is. And in Japan, it is that way with Dragon Quest. Everybody knows that this is huge. This is, you know, there's been a lot of tears shed this week in both hemispheres um after that nintendo direct i know that my tears were shed on live video reaction or not live reaction but but the reaction is on youtube and you can see some of my you know man tears um over banjo and i think that um it's so great that we can have that moment that people in japan can have that moment over a character such as the hero in dragon quest representation in smash they really do feel complete i think the way you said it that that they feel almost finished They've got the heavy hitters, and um, and it is amazing. But there was one more thing. There was one more announcement in the Nintendo Direct that I cared about. That uh, we were we were sitting with. It was me and you and Cameron Regal and Heil Russell, and both Cameron and and Heil are are staffers on DK Vine, of of which uh, both of us are also regular contributors from time to time. Regular from time to time? No, you can't say both of those things. Um, we are sometimes contributors also. And I, w I felt like the only person in the room that cared about Zelda at that moment, which is fair because it was right after Banjo, but I was a little annoyed about it. <laughs> and uh, no, and I... that also was caught on, on video. I mean, I was there. I, I think it was more of a third-party 
um, understanding that it was big. I I personally have not played Breath of the Wild, and I kind of don't plan to. But also, yeah, gotta do it. Well, maybe. But also in that moment, I was like, oh shit! Like I I knew it was a big deal. And after the direct was over and we were off camera, I was fully willing to say and, and ready to to talk about the fact that yes. That banjo reveal was maybe the biggest thing that's going to happen to our kind of narrow banjo fandom community or rare fandom community, um, maybe for years and years to come. But in terms of that whole yeah. direct, the biggest news was revealing Breath of the Wild's follow up, and and I fully understood that. I recognized it then. I recognize it now. I think that is the big news. Breath of the Wild is the kind of game that. Like I, I kind of alluded to earlier when I mentioned Sony and their Spider-Man game on the PS4, that if you just have one game that is big enough, that is a critical darling, and it is a media kind of obsession, that can carry a show. And I think that Breath of the Wild was that for Nintendo a couple years ago. And I think that Breath of the Wild 2 is that. It's that caliber of mega bombshell announcement. Um yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Um, they they gave you just few enough details for you to really sink your teeth into that trailer. I've watched it so many times now, and I still have not much of an idea of what any of it means exactly. We have Link and Zelda. Um, the fact that they're traveling together might imply you can play as Zelda as much as you can play as Link. It can either be... Um, one of them at different times, or you can just choose one to be the whole game. Uh, both of that is cool. I know a lot of people have been desiring playing as Zelda for a really long time now. Uh, so that's that's neat. Uh, they go into a dungeon, which implies that there are dungeons, which Breath of the Wild did not have in the traditional sense. And they find a dehydrated <laughs> Ganondorf course, corpse. Uh, that comes back to life. And I don't know what any of it means, but it's really good, and I like it. It sounds like the music is played backwards over that trailer, but if you listen to it backwards, it is just different music that you've never heard before. So, it's not that. <laughs> it's not exactly backwards. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, I'm, I'm really excited about that. That might be my most anticipated game from the C3, although... Um, it's probably not for a really long time, and I don't really know anything about it. Yeah, well, you know, it, there's certain games that they reveal way ahead of time. Sometimes that happens. One of those examples is something like Metroid Prime 4, and we now know that was a mistake, but this game was revealed early uh, with footage, with with trailer, with actual content. Um so that gives me hope that it's not as far off as you th might think. Something like something like Metroid Prime 4, that's like somewhere between 4 and 10 years away. Uh, maybe 20. <laughs> it's hard to know. It's, maybe it's, 20 years, yeah. It's really hard to know. But I do think Breath of the Wild's follow-up, Breath of the Wild 2, whatever you want to call it, that's probably going to happen in the... It's going to happen in the Switch holiday 2020. Yeah, that could happen. Yeah, uh, which is still a year and a half from now, but we know that they began development on the sequel to Breath of the Wild 
in at least December of 2017, possibly earlier. So that's already been a year and a half. And it would be another year and a half, so that's three years. And we know they're reusing a lot of the assets and physics and stuff from Breath of the Wild 1 in this game. So it um, so, so it you shouldn't know, be that long compared to the first game. It, so there I, are, I would say Holiday 2020. There are games that you can announce ahead of time. Um, and then there are games that you can't. Certain games like, uh, you know... A Donkey Kong Country, as an example, you're going to show that at the E3 before that game releases that holiday season, ideally. Yeah. Whereas a Breath of the Wild, you can give that a year and a half lead time. People people can talk about that for sure for a year and a half, and 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 that's that's what you want. You want that amount of lead time of hype because you don't want to just have six months of hype behind that. You want to you want to milk it a little bit. You want to milk it like a what good E3 called... cow. What if? Oh man, they didn't have the E3 cow this year. <laughs> what? <laughs> There's this game called Farming Simulator. Oh no. That they actually might have had, but I didn't see it. Um, Farming Simulator has been at like every E3 for a really long time now. And they've had this this cow statue and like a little area of E3 carved out for itself where it's just like a farm recreation there's a monster not a monster truck what are those called tractors yeah <laughs> there was a tractor <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah tractors are like farmers monster trucks yeah uh, but there's you know there's like a tractor and some bales of hay and there's the e3 cow um that's the very beloved cow st- uh statue and they didn't have that this year i only put that together right now oh that's so sad I'm sorry that I made you realize that. That's a huge mistake on my own part. Yeah. Um, um, so I thought it, I think I was going to talk about something dumb about Zelda, but I can't remember what it was. So Overall, Nintendo, let's say overall, all of the press conferences, all the press briefings that we did get to experience, who's the winner? What do you think was the one that really did it right? It did a good job. I got to say Nintendo. Um I thought Microsoft so. felt pretty good in a vacuum, but they also, you know, they, they only alluded to Project Scarlet and they had to have known. We already knew that. We all we knew everything about that uh, announcement. We even knew its name thanks to leaks. And they didn't augment their presentation to account for the fact that we already knew that. Um, so I got to deduct points for that. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I have to deduct some points. They, they had a lot of good games, but I think Nintendo brought more of a punch this year, especially considering that we went into Microsoft's expecting a lot, and we went into Nintendo's expecting not that much, because Nintendo usually specifies which game of theirs will be a focus of that E3 before E3 happens. In 2016, we knew it was Breath of the Wild. In 17, we knew it was Mario Odyssey. In 18, we knew it was Smash Brothers Ultimate. And this year, they didn't have one, which made us really worried. Because, like, if they don't have a big hitter, a big heavy hitter, how are they going to compete with previous years? And the answer is they kind of didn't. Um, they they did kind of just let it um, lie how it was. But they did have uh, just a strong showing with a lot of different um, great games that were coming out. They had... Um, Something we didn't talk about from the Nintendo conference that is actually a huge deal is they had a port of The Witcher 3. Mm. And that's The Witcher 3. 
that's a big that's a big old game. They they had a lot of just stuff they were dropping like that every few seconds in that press conference, and that's that's a pretty good press con- conference when you got stuff right. like that happening. You know, and they they did it in a brisk forty five minutes, I I believe. Um, I think forty, yeah. Yeah, and Microsoft kind of stretched it out to not quite two hours, but certainly over an hour. Um. Yeah, I, I have to agree. I think Microsoft had some big things. They, they, you know, it's just double fine is a big deal. Xbox Game Pass Ultimate is something, uh, you know, certainly a big change in industry trends. A lot of first party stuff that says a lot. But and and I liked Ubisoft's conference. I liked Ubisoft's insistence on showing gameplay footage over cinematics for the most part. Um, yeah. But I do, I I do have to agree with you. I think Nintendo. For their brisk forty-five minutes or forty minutes, for their um, for the lowered expectations, and just for the ins- just relentless onslaught of good content, um, you know they they have a robust schedule up ahead. Most of it was games we knew were coming because, which I shouldn't, I don't think should be a knock against them, because the fact that they have a robust twenty nineteen schedule shouldn't be a knock against them they have a lot of stuff on this on the slate and um and then they had some good surprises so i want to say nintendo had the the show but that's just the live shows that's just the press briefings the sort of streamed content you and i did attend the actual stage um the uh the show floor the show floor The, the show floor right yeah this is um this is what's real about e3 this is the real e3 the show floor um this is what you don't get to see usually from home this is uh what everyone who gets a ticket to e3 can do not everyone who gets a ticket to e3 gets into all those press conferences but they do get into the the show floor um what was what was your take did you like it how how was it for you i thought it was great i think that um there's a learning curve to it i think with anything i think there's a sort of you learn how to game it you learn um, I think learning the layout of where things are, things are spread across multiple halls, across multiple buildings, um, learning where certain companies are and then identifying, well, okay, where are the things that I'm interested in are, where are those things learning the pacing of lines and the structure of, of lines and, and how to get into the games you want to see learning, um, the the timing on when to be where um it's all sort of a game in in and of itself that i would be better at next year if i come and i <laughs> yeah, i would um, hope that i can come i felt that way as well i there, there's something to the classification on your badge whether it says gamer or media or industry or exhibition or whatever it says there's something to that that just says, oh, man, because this says a specific thing, I'm not going to be allowed in specific places um, just in the back of your head. And that's not necessarily true. You can get pretty much anywhere on any badge in E3. It, it really doesn't matter that much. But you can um, you, you can count on people making it hard for you to feel like you belong sometimes. The security guards might be a little overzealous in certain areas. Um, although I do appreciate because I'd rather be, um, hassled a little bit than, you know, shot at, in, at a convention like this. There's a lot of people in there. 
and um, a lot of opportunities to bring in, you know, weapons of some sort that I, I'm glad they they tamped down. Um, but yeah, that's that's E3. It, it's it's intimidating and it's it's hard to navigate. So on on the first day of E3, we had just finished watching the Nintendo conference, and I was getting ready to go down there. And uh, you you wanted to to stay for a while. With with Heil was also staying for a while, um, just to work on some stuff for for your for for your your blog and Heil's website and everything because Banjo Kazooie was in Smash Brothers, which is a big deal. And I'm I'm sure um, as much as we all wanted it on a professional level, affected you guys more than me. Well, it, it, that being said, Mitch, um, it should be noted that. Uh, because I was in on a gamer pass and not a media pass, uh, that beginning of that day, Tuesday, I could not even get into the show floor. Oh, that's true. Uh, for, yeah. for an extra three hours um, after you got in. Um, although, we ended up rushing down there uh, middle of that morning uh, because um, Rare and, and the Sea of Thieves team were doing a panel um, about their game, Sea of Thieves, that I wanted to catch with my own personal blog. Um, and we ended up getting there before gamers or gamer pass attendees were technically allowed to attend. Um, but they let me in anyway into the Microsoft theater. And that's when we learned that the Microsoft theater would let gamers in early pretty much every day that week. Uh, even though it was supposed to be a, a restricted time period for media members. And that was nice. That was good to know early. Um, and then game that throughout the week so I could get in and do something in the mornings instead of sitting around waiting for three hours while uh, you and the other media members had their private time. Yeah, um, nothing happened <laughs> at, at that time in that three-hour interim, but it, it um, the lines were shorter, and that was something that they've introduced recently. Around three years ago, they introduced the gamer pass which just let anyone who, who wants to buy a pass for e3 to attend which is cool but it also really 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 clogs the lines up in just about every line like even even games that traditionally would have been just open to you know go and, and, and walk into and, and, and play a round of whatever game they got going on those were really long three years ago. So what they did to, to try to get around that was they said, okay, media and industry, you can come in three hours earlier on two of the days. And I, as a media person, I really like that. I know it's probably annoying and probably exclusionary, but if they didn't do that, I don't think I'd be able to cover everything I want to cover for E3 at all. Well, so there's that. It makes a lot of sense. I, I, I don't complain, but as a person who didn't have the media pass, and, 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 and speaking as someone who could have qualified for the media pass, maybe if I'd applied, if I'd have been able to apply like two months later, my, my, mm. my, my blog's um, traffic would have met requirements. Um, but at the time I needed to apply, I didn't meet requirements. Um, uh, as someone who didn't have the media pass, I was really happy to be able to get into the Microsoft Theater um, during the time period, I technically wasn't supposed to. And I think that kind of represented a, a, a trend with the Microsoft Theater uh, in terms of being a little more lenient, a little more um, relaxed, and uh, a better environment than 
the actual LA Convention Center, but that's not that's neither yeah. here or there. Um, the L, uh, the Microsoft Theater seemed to let anyone with an e, uh, E3 pass in at any time that they were open, and had a lot of just actual developers in front of their games at all times, which is what you want out of E3. And uh, I wish that extended to everyone else, but that is the benefit of owning your own theater right next to E3. Um, they didn't always do that. They they used to be on the show floor like everyone else, but now they now they're putting their stuff at the Microsoft Theater. Um, it is nice. It is nice that they have an opportunity to uh, still play games and, and still do E3 stuff, but in a much <laughs> like lower stress area. And it's just nicer to be in there in general too. Yeah, I thought so. Um, so. So Tuesday, we got in there. You, I stayed back at the apartment to do some banjo stuff, and then uh, you got down there early. Um, overall, what did you think of this show floor experience? Because because you, you've been before. This is definitely not your first E3. You've been to several E3s. Um, what did you think the show floor experience was like relative to past experiences? Right, this is this was my fifth year attending E3 in at least some capacity. And I thought it was a lot barer than it's been in the past. So West Hall is the hall of the LA Convention Center where Nintendo takes their home. Um, in years prior though, West Hall has had Xbox on the left side, Sony in the middle, Nintendo on the right, and even sometimes when Oculus was just starting out, Oculus on, on like the bottom right corner, and Indicade, all in the same place. And like whoa. That was that was a that was a hall to go to. That was an experience. And in the other hall, you got anything from Activision, Capcom, Ubisoft, um EA had not differentiated themselves yet. They still had their stuff in that hall. So just everything was in those two halls. And since then, Sony dropped out. EA goes down the street to their own thing, which is just like an annoying distance from the rest of the show. I tried to go to their stuff once, and then I realized, you know what? Not even worth it. <laughs> for, for someone who does not like a lot of EA's output and is probably unlikely to write about them, not, I'm, not for me. Um, and then Microsoft, it, at least that feels good for Microsoft that they're in their own theater, but they're still like out of the experience. So the show floor is just, it's kind of weird now, man. And there, there's a lot of things where a, a lot of the long time, much longer than me, like the, the old, old, old vets of E3, they're wondering why they're even still coming because all of the information that it is coming out of these companies is either part of the presentations or and these presentations are always live streamed they didn't used to always be live live stream you'd have to rely on press writing articles about them probably like days later in many cases or private interviews that only the top of the top like media people get to do with big name people um you, you know there, there's like some hands-on stuff I got to do for Super Jump, but I don't get to interview Doug Bowser about what Nintendo's putting out later, right? I almost said Reggie. 
<laughs> I almost said Regis <laughs> now. I I already miss him. Um <laughs> But but yeah, like it, it makes it makes you wonder if if this is how the show floor is gonna be with just so few trailers and uh or not so few trailers, like so few demos. And a lot of those demos are converting themselves from playable demos to or things that would have been playable demos to hands-off experiences played by one of the devs in front of you where they can at least prove that it is playable but it's still not you playing it i just i just wonder why i just wonder like so much money is going into the show who's getting the return on this and is it something we're doing just because it's something we've been doing for a while or can it be done better or should we be trying an entirely different thing for the summer of a year of video games it doesn't need to be a convention center in los angeles necessarily but it has been so yeah i mean growing up i i used to read nintendo power you ever read nintendo power growing up uh no i, I was busy uh I was, I was just busy that year <laughs> uh reading nintendo power growing up it made me always want to go to e3 because they would always say stuff like we got to see behind the scenes this e3 Super Mario Sunshine, and I'd be like, "What? Are you kidding?" If you, so, cause, especially because LA is so close to me growing up that I was thinking, like, if I was just a couple cities over and in a different room, I could see the next. I could see Mario sixty four two before it came came out. That's crazy. That's an insane thing. And finally, I get to go, and like by this point, there's a lot of magical moments that still happen in E three all the time, and I don't want to downsell it that much but there's some things that I, I i think um the people watching from home every year maybe romanticizing e3 thinking to themselves man i wish i could go and i i want i want your take on this maybe maybe that magical thing stopped happening in the mid 2000s or so and, and now it's a different kind of trade show where there's a lot fewer secrets that you get to learn there's a lot fewer uh exclusive hands-on things that would be different from what other like hundreds of other people are also playing that week um yeah how, how do you feel about that um you know i, I have to say as a first-time attendee i i had nothing but good experiences i had an excellent time i it was very cool That's i was really great. it was like a dream come true and in, in the sense that it um was a dream come true so things that are like things are things that they are um but <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that being said, I mean, I do understand everything that you've said. I get where you're coming from. I also think that um, throughout the week, I was asked more than once, like, "Oh, this is your first time at E3. Are you going to come back next year?" Yeah. And I, I didn't know exactly how to answer that because I didn't know exactly. I mean, obviously, um, you know, coming to E3 is instantly an incredible commitment. It's it's a it's planning. It's it's time and money investment for myself. It's a large money investment relative to my um, current lifestyle. And, and uh, you know, um, but there also is an interest thing where I have to wonder, um, do I need to do that again? Or do I need to do that every year? Uh, it was amazing and I loved doing it. Um, but is that how it's going to be every year? Is that something that i have to experience again i have to experience every year 
And I'm not saying that I don't. I'm not saying that I have an answer for that question yet. Um, but it is a question that's on my mind. It's like, um, it was amazing. But also, how amazing was it in the sense that would I have <laughs> would I would I well, <laughs> you know, would I would I have to, you know, do I feel so hooked that I've got to make this part of my routine every year? I have to be there. I thought that maybe yeah. the parts that were the best things that I want to re-experience were the fact that I got to hang out with some people, individuals, both friends and industry folk who I would love to meet again and, and have the hand, eye to eye, hand to hand, uh, combat with again, or, or uh, sorry, socialization with, um, but the actual show itself, which facilitates that was it worth it? And that is a kind of a, an existential question. I'm kind of, well, it's a little yeah. bit on the back of my mind. It's not something that's causing me to lose any sleep because I was very happy with my trip. Um, but, it, but it's interesting. Um, I had a great time. I think that navigating it is interesting, navigating everything. I was impressed, uh, with the aspects that you can't see from home, the aspects that, uh, that you don't realize are as big a deal in the, at the show. Um, because at home they aren't. And one of those things being indie games, I think you can back this up. Uh, indie games are, I mean, I think all year round, always indie games are those little hidden gems that are great. And they're always like something you should be looking out for. But there's something that if you're just watching trade shows from home, they have no relevance on your E3 experience at home. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They're just Definitely. a non-factor. Um, but to me, indie games are what E3 is for nowadays. That's, it's it's almost just the point of doing of doing E3. Yeah, I, I it's hard to argue. The 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 very biggest games either are just trailers or just cutscenes, and they're not really having a uh, or they're off hand hands off demos. Um, or if they have demos, they are with such a line, such a wait time. Uh, that it is almost not worth the time because the day is so short, the day goes by so fast. Do I really want to spend two hours waiting to do anything? Um, and sometimes the answer will certainly be yes, but that's a chunk of time. Uh, and with any indie game, you can essentially guarantee that you'll have less than like a 10 or 15 minute wait to jump into yeah, something. It's either you can just jump in or there's only one person in front of you. With most of the indie games, or the uh, college games, um, which which were great to see. And Jeff, I'd like to do a, a little game to end this episode. All right. Because I think we're running a bit long and uh, we can't do all the things that we want to do in this episode, which is also a pretty like, good metaphor. Kind of like E3. E3. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So let's, I, I want to leave the listener with, if they were ever to attend E3, four pieces of advice. Two from you, two from me. Okay. Yeah. Um, my first one is... Hmm. Oh, <laughs> okay, what, a, no, no, no. what a good game. My, my first one is what we were just talking about. If you ever find yourself like, man, I don't want to get in line for Final Fantasy or Call of Duty or whatever. It's going to be such a long line. But I also don't want to just waste that time sitting around. Go to Indiecade. Go to the college games section. Uh, in, in some of the bigger booths like Microsoft's and Nintendo's, 
they also have indie games on the side for their specific console. Go to one of those kinds of places and just play something random. Even if it doesn't look like you'd like it, even if you just don't vibe with their um, advertisement at all, just, just try it. it. It'll probably be surprisingly interesting. Jeff, we played Supermarket Shriek, which <laughs> is a game where a man and a goat sit in a shopping cart together at its co-op. I was the man, you were the goat, and you can control the shopping cart by screaming with your character and turning the shopping cart in the direction of the character that was just screaming. Um, and that was a surprisingly fun thing that I never would have tried if I didn't just sit down at Supermarket Shriek on a complete whim. Right. Absolutely. I got that experience out of pretty much every indie game I played. It was something that this is something I've never heard of. This is something that I don't even know I'm going to like or have really an understanding of what it is. But there's no line. It looks colorful. Let's just give it a shot. And and, and uh, the person who is demoing that game to you is most likely going to be a guy who says, hey, this is a game I made. Or this is a game yeah. I made with three other people or whatever. And, um, and you can pick that guy's brain if you want to, uh, which is way different than going to a Nintendo booth where you're being shepherded by someone from a modeling agency who has no attachment directly to the development of Pokemon Sword and Shield or what have you. Yeah. Good yeah. that's good advice Nintendo for, has for that number problem one. because if they were developers, there would probably be a language barrier and also the developers at Nintendo were just so famous that they can't just be on the show floor hobnobbing with the the commoners, you know. But um yeah, it it is just refreshing to see. Yeah, no, no, no. I made this. It was me. Right. Uh, yeah. I spent months on it, and now I get to show you, and you're the first person I'm showing. Uh, that is that is an experience. So that is my my first piece of advice, Jeff. Do you have any advice? All right, my first piece of advice, which is our collective second piece of advice, would be to get out of the way. Um, the things that you intensely would like to experience, uh, anything that you, games particular that you want to experience, things that you schedule appointments for, get them out of the way in the first day or the second day, Tuesday and Wednesday, at the second day at the latest. Anything that you are particularly a fan of or that you know that, that for your interest or for your, for your company or whatever that you need to cover, do them right off the bat make yourself stressed out by running from point a to point b to cover what you would like to cover because the sooner you get those things out of the way the sooner they are lifted off your shoulders and suddenly um you realize you have time in the later yeah. half of the week to just experience things you didn't expect or just to take your time a little bit and uh and it really makes your week end on a much higher note if you if you handle it in that in that sequence it does it does i i completely agree i managed to do that this year and by thursday i just had a completely free thursday to just kind of wander around and do whatever i wanted which i used mostly to just look at smaller indie games and stuff so that was great that was a a, a great thing to do totally agree um piece of advice number three i would say if you're a fan of rare you gotta go stop by and see rare because uh, unlike a lot of the bigger companies at these kinds of things, 
that is just the developers also. <laughs> that is, it's just them. Um, we, we both met Craig Duncan, who is the CEO of Rare, and not because we know him, just because he's kind of around. And we, we met a, a bunch of people over there. Uh, again, this is a very specific and, and niche piece of advice. But if you do like that company, if you like that, that studio, go see that studio. They're at the Microsoft Theater mostly. Um, good guys, and they love to talk about Sea of Thieves and Battletoads and whatever it is they're working on. So, so I heartily recommend you do that. Yeah, I, I can't disagree at all. It's an excellent piece of advice. Very niche, uh, something that caters to my interests particularly. But yeah. Um, yeah, it, it feels like going to see a Nintendo game, but then actually having the developers there that you can talk to about it, um, which is not something you can do with Nintendo, unfortunately. Yeah, you know, and uh, I, I came back from E3. I talked to some of my friends after the show, after I returned from my trip. And I said, this is my experience with Rare. And it was like this. And they were like, that's amazing. And then they would, and then I would say, and then I played this other game. Like, I don't know, some other game, like Luigi's Mansion. And then they would ask me like, yeah, so what did the developers say about that? And I was like, no, 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 no. The Luigi's, <laughs> the no. Luigi's Mansion developers weren't there. And then they'd say, well, what about, you know, you said you played Crash Team Racing. And I'm like, no, 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 no. The developers of that game weren't there. It was just some guys. And uh, yeah, and to be clear, they are there. I'm sure they're there somewhere. Yeah, right, um, right, right. Certainly. When you have an appointment to see them, when you're when you're like a, a one of them media bigwigs, you can see the developers of that of, of those games, and that is a cool thing to do. But it un, unless you have that kind of appoint, uh, uh, appointment status, unless you have reason for seeing them, you're probably not going to see them. I remember in 2015. I was just sitting around, and I saw Miyamoto walk by, and in that moment, I felt like, well, that's never, ever going to happen again. And you know what? I was right. I never again saw Miyamoto just walking among the rest of the people in in four years of E3 coverage, and I never expect to again. I, I don't... That kind of thing doesn't help happen with most companies. It's great, and now and now it's my spot to be on the spot uh, for a and fourth. Now it is your spot. A fourth, you piece, of a fourth piece of my advice. My fourth piece of advice is to uh, not to just play games, but to ask questions. I think that um, no matter what booth you're at, um, I think there are booths where this is less good advice. I think that you can ask any question you want of the person who is demoing Pokemon Sword and Shield, and you'll probably get nothing out of that time you spend. But there are a lot of booths, a lot of places you can go. Uh, where There's you... a lot of dunking on Pokemon. Just a, just yeah. a lot of you know, just slamming them down. I did, yes. Uh, <laughs> I think that mo a lot of places you go, if you're demoing a game and you want to ask questions, you are going to get more out of the questions you ask than the gameplay that you demoed. And maybe I'm off base there, but because maybe I had a niche experience with Rare. <laughs> but uh, I felt like there were other experiences I had that were similar, where um, uh, and, and you ask the person who is there to shepherd you through a demo, if you just pick their brain a little bit, you might get more out of picking their brain than out of the demo itself. Um, you At least you'll get some context um, beyond just the demo, and that that is worth your time. Um you know, that's totally true. Uh, in, at the Indiecade, you and I were both there. We talked to the developer of a game called Infinite Children, uh, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe he said he was a professor at USC. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was working with a student on this game. And just the way he was talking about it to us, he was, seemed so, so interested in his own ideas, which is great. You know, you want to see that kind of passion. And he was talking about, in this game, Infinite Children, you... Man, I, I don't... Do you know how to explain this yeah. game? He said, he said yeah. uh, when this game first came out, uh, the first person to play it, it was a game that lasted seven minutes of a narrative. And when they completed the game and they earned an achievement on Steam, the fact that they earned that achievement triggered something in his code that, that extended the game and, and added his experience in a way um, onto the game so that the second person to play that game suddenly had a different experience that was slightly longer and that was informed by the experience of that previous player. And he said that eventually, after uh, 22,000 total people had completed it, the game would be quote-unquote finished and maxed out at somewhere around 35 or 36 uh, minutes long of a unique sort of narrative that, that had extended itself. And uh, and it was really actually quite fascinating that they had timed it, uh, I think totally by mistake, but, but, but by happy coincidence, um, that the people playing it on the show floor of E3, that on the last day of E3, towards the end of the last day of E3, we were talking to them, and they said, yeah, we are seven people, seven individual playthroughs away from reaching the maximum playthroughs of this game to, to, to reach the end state. Uh, yeah, like seven out of 20,000 or something. So they, they timed that extremely well. A fascinating concept. And the guy uh, just talked with us extensively. He just gushed about his concept. He gushed about the idea of how narrative can be done in games and how... Um, he, he described it, actually, you know, he described it as a massively single-player game in that yeah. in that you are playing a single-player narrative, but it's so informed by the experiences of thousands of other players um, that, yeah, there is some sort of new type of concept, and that was really fascinating. And he kind of talked about, you know, what if somebody steals his idea in, in a way that he's really supportive of and, and uh, takes it and applies to something much bigger? that he would love to see that happen. He would be uh, really um, uh, flattered to have his idea stolen and applied on a grander scale than he could implement um, because what he had there was this really cool little indie game, um, but it was mainly an idea more than a game. And uh, and like I said, you know, you, you pick anybody's brain that you run into at E3, um, even not even just the exhibitors. You pick the brains of the people in line with you. And you're going to find some characters. You're going to find some people with some walks of life and some some perspectives. You, you you're waiting in line, and you've got to you've got to wait for 45 minutes or an hour. Pick people's brain and, and not be afraid to uh, to to experience the people at E3 because I think that the people are as much a part of E3 as uh, the demos and the exhibits. Um, and that I think that's, you're totally right. That's it, my if bit you of treat advice. It more like a classroom and less like a like a theme park where you can just get in line for attractions, you'll have a much, I think, a much more edifying, like, intellectually lucrative time at E3. And I I hope that people can, can do that. If you can go to E3, I would recommend you do it probably once, maybe not consecutively. Um, like what you were saying earlier, Jeff, with, with um, whether or not you would come back to E3, 
I think the fact that that's a question kind of means that it is cool enough to knock it off of your bucket list, but maybe not cool enough that it's actually doing the job it's doing, because if it's doing the job it's doing, you should want to be able to do it every year. At least that's my interpretation of that. Um, it, it, it's a tricky, it's a, it's a tricky sticky wicket. And I, I hope that there are changes made to the show in the years coming that make it um, more accessible and more interesting and exciting and, and worth it for the common audience. But also, also I, I do still like what it's doing. It's not all bad. I, I do still really enjoy going to E3. And I do get a lot out of it. Yeah, it's complicated. It's a complicated show. It is. I, I, I want to reiterate that I personally had an excellent time. And uh, I, I don't regret any aspect of it. I don't. I think that I learned a lot. I think that if I did go back, I probably would have an even better time because of what I learned and how to manage my time and where things are and what to do and what not to do. Um, yeah, I, you know, I and I do recommend that if you think that going to E3 is something you'd like to do you are probably right you're probably right now we are going to be talking about individual news stories from that came out of e3 later on um, other episodes of the super jump podcast and there will be hands-on articles about my time at e3 coming on uh coming up on superjumpmagazine.com that's superjumpmagazine.com you can go there for all kinds of cool articles uh really exciting stuff through uh, the coming at least a little while. We're still going to be publishing E3 stuff. We've got a lot more. And other other articles there are always great to read. I uh, am, am constantly floored by the fact that Super Jump Magazine continues to attract such great writers and such interesting thinkers. And it's just, it's just a great place to hang out. It kind of reminds me a little bit of a cross between a scientific journal and a 1990s video game popular magazine, uh, which is a weird crossbreed, but I, th I think there's something to it, and I really, really enjoy where that magazine's going. So please head on over there. That's superjumpmagazine.com. Please enjoy all those articles. Remember to subscribe, like the show, rate the show uh, wherever appropriate. Thanks for listening, and stay super!